Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 107. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 1 through 3 and follow with a consideration of names or nouns formed after a person. The book of Jeremiah is the second in the Latter Prophets series, placed second, ostensibly, because of its place chronologically, much like the Treasar, the Book of the Twelve. And in its first three verses, Jeremiah situates itself in the chronology. Quote, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anatot in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And throughout the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, when Jerusalem went into exile in the fifth month. This cannot get any more specific. From external sources, we know that the thirteenth year of Yoshia's reign was 627 BCE, and Jerusalem was exiled in 586 BCE. But we also know that Jeremiah, or as we'll call him from here on out, Yirmiyahu, continued to prophesize even after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Yirmiyahu's career was long, and his book reflects it. More than any other book in the latter prophets, we get to know the prophet himself, as well as his prophecies. There are numerous chapters on Yirmiyahu's personal life, specifically during the days of Jehoiakim and Sidkiyahu. Okay, a brief refresher on this critical period in Jewish history, which serves as the backdrop for Yirmiyahu's life and times. So, the first half of the 6th century BCE finds Babylon ascendant, while Assyria is in slow decline. And in Judea, in the early years of Yirmiyahu's activities during the 18th year of King Yoshia's reign, or 622 BCE, when he initiates wide-sweeping political and religious reforms. We discussed them previously in episode 87, when we discussed 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Yoshia annexes some territory north of Jerusalem, absorbs refugees from the north, the Ephraimites, but more importantly, he centralizes worship. He outlaws the previously tolerated Canaanite and Assyrian practices, and he shuts down local high places for near offering. From now on, all worship all near offering what happened in Jerusalem in the temple. But Yoshia falls in battle in around 609 BCE and his son Yehoahaz takes over, but the Egyptians depose him and install a more amenable monarch Yehoiakim. But the Babylonians are on the move and by 605 BCE, after the decisive victory at Carchemish, the Babylonians turn Judea into a vassal state. This arrangement holds for five years until Yehoiakim revolts against Babylonia. During the siege of Jerusalem, Yehoiakim dies and his son Yehoiachin takes over and soon surrenders. He is punished with exile to Babylonia. 10,000 residents of Jerusalem are exiled with him. This Galut Yehoiachin, this exile of the elites, was a tragedy of epic proportions only rivaled by the failure of the revolt launched eventually by King Sidkiyahu in 586 BCE, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the exile of an overwhelming percentage of Judea's population to Babylonia. Throughout all of this, Yirmiyahu was a witness and a force to be reckoned with. Born in Anatot, a town east of Jerusalem on the frontier with Benjamin, he was from a family of priests, perhaps a descendant of Eviatar the priest, who had been put under house arrest slash internal exile in Anatot by King Shlomo for supporting his brother Adonia. He began to prophesize as a young man. 
and already from an early age he came to embody the tragic lot of a prophet. The compulsion to speak truth to power and to the people, trying to avert the disaster that is sure to come because of the wickedness of the monarchy and the people, and the very human urge to flee such a thankless and, in Yirmiyahu's case, dangerous job. Yirmiyahu ran afoul of the monarchy. He preached submission to Babylonia during the revolt. So long as I am your king, treason shall never go unpunished. Sir Illin, bring me his head. So where did all this begin with Yirmiyahu? Much in the same way it began for Moshe in Exodus chapter 3, Yeshayahu in chapter 6, or will begin for Yechezkel in Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. But in each instance, although similar in general terms, there's also a bit of the individual in, in the story of his being called. So you have the calling, quote, Before I created you in the womb, I selected you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet concerning the nations. Then there's the prophet's protest. Quote, I replied, Ah, Lord God, I don't know how to speak, for I am still a boy. And at this stage, he literally is a boy. And then God blows off the prophet's hesitation. Quote, Do not say I am still a boy, but go wherever I send you, and speak whatever I command you. And then there's God's encouragement, quote, have no fear of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And then the sign, quote, the Lord hath put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, herewith I put my words into your mouth. Except here's where Yirmiyahu's calling diverges. Even though other prophets speak about Gentiles or even speak to them, no one besides Yirmiyahu is charged to, quote, be a prophet concerning the nations. And no other prophet's tone is set so early, quote, see, I appoint you on this day over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. There are four verbs of ruin, two of consolation. This will define Yirmiyahu's message throughout his career. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. So what are we to make of the vision of the branch of an almond tree, a familiar sight to a boy who grew up on the western edge of the Judean desert? The almond tree is the first to blossom among the fruit trees that shed their leaves in the winter, and its white petals, like the white hair of the aged, points to its inevitable demise. But what about the boiling pot tipped away from the north, mentioned in verse 13? Well, perhaps it's not literally a boiling pot, but the sarcopoterium plant, a member of the rose family, which is also common in the region. It's shaped like a pot, used for teas, but more importantly, in the summer, because of the high temperatures, it dries up and appears dead. And it's also used as fuel for heating one's home in the winter months. So in short, both visions only represent one thing. Quote, from the north shall disaster break loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. And Yirmiyahu must go and relay this news to the people and to its leaders. But fear not, quote, I make you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against Judah's kings and officers, and against its priests and citizens. They will attack you but they shall not overcome you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. Chapter 2 is still very much in the ruin column, and clearly one delivered before Yoshia's religious reforms because he lays into the Jews for chasing after idols. Each section of this prophecy beginning with a rhetorical question. For example, verse 5, quote, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they abandoned me and went after delusion and were deluded? And then he goes on to tear the people a new one. Quote, 
They said, To wood, you are my father. To stone, you gave birth to me. While to me, they turned their backs and not their faces. But in their hour of calamity, they cry, Arise and save us. And where are those gods you made for yourself? Let them arise and save you if they can in your, honor, in your hour of calamity. For your gods have become, O Judah, as many as your towns. Oh, damn! And what's worse is the people's faith in Egypt and this expectation that the Egyptians will come and save them in these troubled times. Yirmiyahu continues in chapter 3, cutting even deeper, getting personal. Quote, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, can he ever go back to her? In other words, you don't know me. And the Jews don't ever learn. Didn't they see what happened up north? Quote, have you seen what rebel Israel did going to every high mountain and under every leafy tree and whoring there? I thought after she has done all these things, she will come back to me. But she did not come back, and her sister, faithless Judah, saw it. I noted, because rebel Israel has committed adultery. I cast her off and handed her a bill of divorce, yet her sister, faithless Judah, was not afraid. She too went and whored. But even after all the whoring, God is still ready to forgive, and like the therapist in that joke about a light bulb, it really only takes one but the bulb itself has to want to change. So too with the Jews. The desire to change has to come from them. But will it? Thus endeth the summation and beginneth the consideration. So this is kind of required when we're talking about the book of Jeremiah. For many people, myself included, when you say the word Jeremiah, that's the first thing that pops into your head. In fact, Joy to the World, a Hoyt Axton song, Three Dog Night recorded and released as a fun single from their 1971 album, naturally almost began Jeremiah Was a Prophet. But no one liked that opening, so they changed it. Just think, it could have sounded a little like this. It's been a while since I've done one of those meta episodes where rather than delve into a specific issue arising from a specific verse, I follow a somewhat different trajectory, more like a tangent line to the circle rather than a radius from the perimeter plunging toward the center. So after Three Dog Night, the next association that I have with Yirmiyahu is the rhetorical mode that he pioneered, the Jeremiad, which is an eponym, hence the name of this episode. Roman Mars and Helen Zaltzman, hosts of two outstanding podcasts, 99% Invisible and The Illusionist, respectively, dedicated two episodes to the eponym, which as they define it is, quote, a person after whom a discovery, invention, place, etc. is named, or thought to be named, a name or noun formed after a person. An eponym, almost by definition, has some kind of story behind it, some reason it came to be named after a specific person. I'll throw up a link to the show at thenextjew.com. They recount the story of French politician Etienne Saint de Silhouette, English editor Thomas Baudler, inventors Laszlo Biro and Marcel Bic. Guess what's named after them? And they talk about diseases too. It's definitely worth a listen. In this episode, I'm going to discuss two eponyms, the first inspired by our boy Yirmiyahu, and the other by his rhetorical Greek cousin, which I guess is also an eponym 
the Philippic, which is not actually named after its originator, but its target. So let's start first with Yirmiyahu. Jeremiah inspired the Jeremiad. The Jeremiad is a tirade, often in prose, but sometimes in verse, where the author bitterly laments the state of society and its morals. The author also anticipates the society's downfall because of its wickedness and moral failings. Besides Yirmiyahu, who will deploy many a Jeremiah in his eponymous book, and we will explore more of them in depth in the coming episodes, the Jeremiah was also weaponized and deployed in the United States, specifically during its colonial period. The General Court of Massachusetts would open in May of each year from 1634 on with an election sermon, a practice that continued pretty much without interruption until 1834. By 1660, however, and for the next 30 years or so, many election day sermons were in fact Jeremiads. It was the favorite literary device of the Puritans, especially in sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Now, before I get into Edwards, a word about the Puritans. I just erased everything. As their name denotes, the Puritans were way into purity, which meant that they rarely smiled or had fun or did anything remotely entertaining, which is why the dictionary defines Puritan as, quote, a person with censorious moral beliefs, especially about pleasure and sex. Like I said, I don't care for cheese. I'm a curd mudgeon. One of the most famous Jeremiads was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a real humdinger of a title, which really gives you a sense of the censorious, judgy moralizing. It was written by British colonial Christian theologian and frowny face Jonathan Edwards, who preached it initially to his own congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts, with little seeming effect, and then again on July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut. When he delivered this Jeremiah on election day, however, Edwards was frequently interrupted by people moaning and crying out, what shall I do to be saved? To which he replied, <laughs> so long, suckers. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is a leading example of a great awakening sermon. Now the great awakening, or to be more precise, the first great awakening was an evangelical moment in, that swept the American colonies in the 1730s and the 1740s. It left a permanent impact on American Protestantism by pulling America's believers away from ritual, away from ceremony, and away from hierarchy. And more importantly, it made Christianity intensely personal to the average American by fostering a deep sense of spiritual conviction and redemption. Oh, and uh, Edwards also dismissed scientific inquiry. He taught that only a personal experience could be valid. For Puritan ministers, the Jeremiah clearly illustrated the link between individual behavior and communal success. So if you slept during church services or drank too much alcohol, you not only put yourself at risk, but the whole community. If people persisted in sinning, God would take it as a breach of the covenant and punish the colonists with famine, disease, drought, you name it. Edwards and other Puritan ministers did not address America's greatest sin of slavery, as he was a slave owner. But Edwards did believe that Africans would acquire absolute equality with Europeans in the church. African Americans would later adopt the Jeremiah as part of the abolitionist movement to end slavery, adding racial inequality and slavery as sins that were just as dangerous to New England as alcoholism, thievery, and whatnot. God would punish New England for not only sleeping in church or drinking too much or whatever, but for owning other humans and treating them as property. In the mouth of Frederick Douglass, somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice, 
The Jeremiah became a powerful weapon in the abolitionist struggle, rallying the allies and as it undermined the pro-slavery argument. In the mouth of Martin Luther King Jr., the Jeremiah had propelled the civil rights movement onto the national stage and resulted in the end of segregation in the United States. Like the Jeremiah, the Philippic is a fiery, damning speech. Its eponym derives from the Greek Philippikoi Logoi, the name given to a series of speeches given in 351, 344, and 341 BCE. Just to give you a sense of where we are on the timeline, Yirmiyahu's tearing folks a new one happened around, say, 625 BCE, when the Babylonian Empire was ascendant. But spoilers, they would not reign forever. In 539 BCE, the mighty Babylonians fall. According to accounts in the book of Daniel, which we'll get into around episode 222, sometime in November of 2021, the Babylonians are literally drunk with their power. King Belshazzar holds a great feast for a thousand of his lords and commands that the temple vessels from Jerusalem be brought out so that they can drink from them. But as the Babylonians drink, a hand appears and writes on the wall. Belshazzar calls for his magicians and diviners to interpret the writing, but they are unable to even read it. The queen advises Belshazzar to send for Daniel, who is, if nothing else, wise. Daniel is brought in. And the king offers to make him third in rank in the kingdom if he can interpret the writing. Daniel declines the honor, but agrees to the request. He reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar's greatness was the gift of God, yada, yada, yada. And then he interprets the phrase, mene, mene, tekel ufarsin. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. And Farsin, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the thing is that on October 12th, 539 BCE, the Persian conqueror Cyrus the Great enters and takes Babylon. Daniel has Belshazzar as king of Babylon and son of Nebuchadnezzar, but Belshazzar was actually the son of King Nabonidus, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, and he never became king. Daniel also names Darius the Mede as the conqueror, but no such individual is known to history, and the invaders were not Medes, but Persians. But you get the gist. So that's 539 BCE. Fast forward a little bit to, say, 480 BCE, that's the Battle of Thermopylae, dramatized so compellingly in Frank Miller's graphic novel 300 and Zack Snyder's movie. This is Sparta! And though the novel and movie portrays the Persians under King Xerxes as the villains, the Persians, as imperial powers go, are actually pretty good overlords. If you want a deep dive into how good the Persians were, I highly recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History episodes 56 through 58 entitled King of Kings. Be warned, it's a serious commitment of time, but well, well worth it. I'll put up the link also at thenextjew.com. Anywho, the Persians are eventually defeated by those plucky Greeks, but not before the Greeks themselves are, shall we say, transformed by their neighbor to the north, Macedon, and it's King Philip II who had designs on Greece. Well, of course, the Greeks had something to say about these designs, or more specifically, one Greek individual did, a former professional speechwriter and lawyer turned statesman and orator named Demosthenes. His three Philippics urge the Greeks to oppose the rising power of Philip, and they also have a lot of not nice things to say about Philip. The Athenians would eventually lose to the Macedonians in 338 BCE, ending their independence. But Philip wouldn't really be around long enough to enjoy his victory. He was eventually assassinated in 336. This style of righteous condemnation, this Philippic, would be adopted later by the Roman politician and lawyer Marcus Tullius Cicero, or as he's better known by his pals, just Cicero. 
Cicero came from a wealthy municipal family of the Roman equestrian order, and he was considered one of Rome's greatest orators and prose stylists. He served as consul when Rome was rocked by intrigue after the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BCE. Cicero wished that the plotters would have taken out Mark Antony as well, and thus set out to do with his pen and his words what the assassins could not or did not do with their daggers. Cicero delivered 14 Philippics in less than two years, but Caesar's assassination would not go unanswered. In the infamous proscription of 43 BCE, all the scores would be settled. The triumvirs, the three leaders of Rome, Octavian Caesar, Mark Antony, and Marcus Lepidus, would avenge Caesar's assassination, eliminate political enemies, and acquire their properties. The prime targets of this move would be Brutus and Cassius, but other individuals who had taken part in the Civil War, including wealthy people, senators, knights, and Republicans such as Cicero, would also catch it in the neck. There were 2,000 names on that list. Anyone who tried to save people on that list were also added to the list. The material belongings of the dead victims were to be confiscated. Most, however, were killed, in some cases, gruesomely. Cicero's head and hands were cut off, and fastened to the rostra, the platform from which the orators spoke to the public. So what have we learned today, children? Well, don't use your hands, use your words. And if you use your words too well, you might not be able to use your hands very much longer. So maybe kind of stick to your hands, or find better words. Just like Yirmiyahu, who has a lot more words for us in the next episode. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 108, when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 4 through 7.